Welcome to the Jig Is Up podcast with your hosts, Darcy and Jason. The Jig Is Up is recorded on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy, as well as the lands of Treaty 6 Nations. We aim to bring you new perspectives and open up conversations about Métis politics, culture, and current events, as well as stories that affect Indigenous from all over. If you like the show, or you don't, or if you want to send us suggestions for guests or topics to discuss on the show, feel free to email us at metispodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to follow us on all of the social media at Métis Podcast. Welcome to The Chick is Up. I'm Darcy, and of course, this is Jason. Hey, buddy, how's it going? Good, trying to stay dry. Right on, right on. Yeah, it's been a little rainy this spring, in, uh, yeah. at least in Alberta. Um, and you're under, like, flood watch or something, right? Yeah, we have both rivers that go through town, and uh, yeah, so we're under flood watch for both. Wicked. Yeah, evacuated one of the local RV parks. Nice. Nice. Well, that'll keep you busy, right? Yeah. <laughs> Plus, I mean, yeah. it's it's like you're coming, we're coming out of, sort of coming out of the COVID thing. So, I mean, you're kind of getting back to business a little bit, and it's just kind of a weird time, I think. Yeah, weird days, I think, for everybody, you know, especially yeah. if you're self-employed, running a business, you know, try to get customers back. and. Yeah. What does it mean? And, and, and you're right. So we're kind of coming out of this whole round one as it is. We'll have to see what happens, you know, when round two hits. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I don't know. I, uh, I don't know if we'll see a, much of a spike in COVID. I don't know. I, everybody talks about uh, round two coming. So I don't know. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll hit sooner or later. I don't know. Wait and see. We just roll with the punches. That's how we got to go. Yeah, pretty much in 2020 here, I think it's a day-to-day thing where you just wake up and if today's going to be a good day, it'll be a good day, you know? Yeah. Yeah, every new month is like another level on Jumanji, so it's all great. <laughs> exactly. That is one thing I do love about COVID is all the memes that everybody's putting out that are absolutely hilarious. Yeah. So, so I thought we'd start today uh there was a, a while ago and we talked about this on previous shows it was about a year ago roughly maybe a little longer um the mmf uh, the new palliser government came in and they ended a deal a hydro deal with the mmf and it was 67 and a half million dollars paid out over 50 years um i think there was like an, a lump sum upfront payment and then a million dollars a year for 50 years and when the palliser government came in they nixed the deal. They just canceled it. Uh, of course, the MMF went batshit crazy and decided to sue them. And so now we're seeing the finale of the lawsuit, which I'll just kind of read a little bit of it here. Um, so <clears throat> the, the courts decided that the Manitoba government was well within its rights to cancel the deal. Um, the MMF argued that uh, didn't the, the government didn't have the right to squash an agreement, a settlement agreement agreed to by Federation of Manitoba and Hydro. Um, but the court disagreed. And I think we predicted this. I mean, you know, when we looked at the actual, some of the actual words in the contract, like there's this, there's a get out clause where basically 30 days written notice and you can cancel the deal on either side. So the MMF could have, or the government, and we, we suspected that the government probably provided them 30 days notice and said, that's it. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if that was the key factor, but I mean, the courts obviously ruled that no, there was, and, and they, I think they even went on to say there was no honor to the crown or duty of the crown or something, because this is just a contract. Um, like there's no, 
land exchange. This really was just a payment so that the MMF would not oppose any future hydro deals for the next 50 years. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was um, Premier Brian Palliser had said something along the lines of uh, his government didn't want to, you know, pay for, you know, or take away rights from unborn Indigenous children for the next 50 years, which I thought was a really interesting statement to be made by his government, which is not necessarily the most Indigenous friendly government, and I'm not a big fan of their government, but that is kind of what we talked about on the show here um, when we talked about it a couple of years or a year and a half ago or whatever. So it really is one of the interesting things that we did talk about. And it's, it's really funny. And I mean, I'm not a fan of uh, most of the colonial politicians or their governments. And it's not fun when they're using obvious jargon ag against Métis people. Yeah. Um, the very fact that, that the uh, MMF would provide them with the cannon fodder as it was, is is sad really because it continually puts uh metis leadership of any color whether we agree with them or not in a bad light all the time and it sure seems like the government's able to take what they would perceive as the mature role you know the responsible government role because look at the poor metis people are willing to sell their people down the river for 50 years so i'll have to help them out yeah well, and that's what we talked about before is like this deal was, I mean, it wasn't a good deal for future generations of, of Métis. It was, it was hush money. It was like, it wasn't for an exchange of land. It wasn't for an exchange of anything. It was simply to not oppose any hydro deal for 50 years. And, you know, at the time we were confused as to why anybody in their right mind would sign that, um, specifically Indigenous leaders. But, um, I mean, for... Honestly, really a paltry amount of money considering they spend over a million dollars a year just on travel and accommodations and meals. I mean, the, this deal doesn't even cover their travel accommodation and meals. So in their budgets, this is a paltry amount of money. So like if you're going to sell out your, your rights for the next 50 years, you're like 100 million, 200 million maybe? Like, like you got to put a higher price tag on that at least. Um, so I, I mean, I, I, me personally, I thought this was a shady deal to begin with. So I was happy to see it go. Well, I'm, I'm happy they didn't win. It was uh, an unjust thing. It was really, uh, like you said, it was a sellout. Um, it's sad that it continues to go this way and paints Métis leadership in bad lighting. It paints uh, Métis citizens in bad lighting that supports this leadership, and it continually gives the colonial government structure a positive lighting that they're still, you know, needed to help poor Métis people make good choices uh, for their people. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's the one downside to this is that um, I like, I don't know what they were earmarking this money for. Um, but obviously, uh, I, I don't believe a lot of it was getting to help Métis people to begin with. But I mean, it, it does kind of sour the whole concept that, you know, Indigenous people are owed, uh, you know, not necessarily just money, but I mean, we're owed work to put our, the culture back, work to put languages back, work to put, uh, to end racism and stigmas against Indigenous people. I mean, this is hard work that people and volunteers and activists are putting their like, literally blood, sweat and tears into every day. And then you have somebody come along to just sell out those rights. And it, 
it just kind of muddies the water if you're non-Indigenous Canadian going, okay, so they were trying to milk the system for more money and now, you know, like it just muddies all that water. So I, I think it's, in that regard, it's, it's an incredibly negative deal to begin with. Um, and the fact that it's, they're trying to sue and do all these things, um, it, it really does make them just look like money grubbing, like greedy money, money grubbing at people. That's what it looks like. Um, which to me takes away from the message that, you know, a million other indigenous people have fought for, which is, you know, rights and recognition and, and not just platitudes from governments, um, not just words, but actual actions. So I think it, this, to me, this deal was just negative on that front alone. Absolutely. And I think that's a, a good point though, is that we've said this lots of times about this organization and no matter what province it resides in, that it represents Métis people to the federal government and to major industries, but it does so off the backs of individual Métis people, mm -hmm. you know, Powley, and Daniels, neither of these guys were card-carrying members in any level of this organization. And yet, they are the ones who have now been able to basically empower the MNA, the MNF, the MNA, you know, the rest of them, to negotiate these deals for millions of dollars in duration of time and, and assert their Métis rights with industry. But it was really off the backs of people who really weren't even part of the organization. And so... There's this real duality in Métis politics and Métis identity uh, conversation where big organizations are benefiting off of the backs of people who were never members of these organizations. Absolutely. And I mean, you can look at the uh, just the total dysfunction of the MNC cartel structure right now. Um, they built that structure over the last 20, 30 years on the backs of people like Harry Daniels. Um, and then when it's convenient for them, suddenly they walk away from that and say, oh, we don't need that anymore. We're too big. And I, I've been thinking about that a lot and thinking that, like, why now? Why now are they suddenly saying, oh, you know, anybody over here and, and the Powleys and stuff, they're no longer Métis. And, and to me, I think it, it boils down to what I can only suspect is their egos got in the way. They felt that they're so big and they're so powerful and they've just got such an ally in Jesus Trudeau. I mean, uh, Justin Trudeau that, uh, that they don't have to worry anymore about those people over there. They don't need them to be part of their group because now they have more power than they have ever had. And, uh, it just seems like they, they, they got that power and that money and they, they think they, things are going so well. And then they just kind of cut a, cut that out. Like, Oh, well, we only needed that when it was to our advantage. Now we don't need it. So, you know, goodbye all you communities we used to call Métis communities. Um, well, it, and it really goes to show the shifting nature of Métis identity politics. I'm not a fan of that, but it really shows how it's still very, very prevalent today. We use, like you, exactly like you said, how much of the modern con conversation has been founded on um, me, what, what Paulies did, you know, we have Alberta, yeah. our entire hunting and fishing rights are now intrinsically linked to that case. Yes. But also it's about a community. How many communities in Alberta have been recognized as historical Métis communities based on that Pali decision. So yeah. when we were establishing these communities as Métis people in Alberta under that ruling, we thought it was good. Yeah. But now 
that there are communities outside of what we would be happy would be our territory are meeting that same criteria. Well, now Pali's no good. We can't we can't use Pali no more. Exactly. Because it's it's allowing people to you know from the MNA's point of view muddy the waters on Métis identity. So now we can't have Pali as some kind of benchmark to yeah. establish Métis community and Métis identity. Yeah. But that's very problematic because the communities we have here who are enjoying our harvesting rights and, and being part of what we call a historical Métis community was founded on that, that case. Absolutely. So it, it goes to show that continually um, these organizations are out of touch with the grassroots Métis people and how we feel about ourselves and our identity. And they're willing to shift in any which way they feel is going to benefit them on a funding level, yeah. not not on a identity level, not as us as a people level, but simply in response to governmental funding. Yes. Well, and it is interesting because, you know, uh, you know, recently um, one of Sebastian Millet's and co-authors books came into English uh, language print. Um, but the, that book is, it's won an award and it's also been, um, I think it was the book that won the award and, and they've undergone a lot of criticism because, you know, they're, they're not indigenous, um, which kind of goes to that whole identity thing again, because they're, those guys will get a lot of criticism for their books, even though they find historical documents, they find historic, like they're not just making stuff up. They're actually doing the research. They're going to communities. And they're finding these documents, these, they're finding this information um, about Métis identity in the East. And yet it's just wholeheartedly disregarded. But the one guy who, you know, is admittedly not Métis or not Indigenous, he's the expert. And everybody goes to him. And so it's, you, you, you always seem to have this real um, back and forth about identity and I, and and you know, and it permeates everything. I think when you're talking about Métis politics, especially, um, but I just find it weird that, you know, we're willing to accept a non-indigenous fella as an expert, but an indigenous guy, not an expert uh, because he lives across this imaginary line that Canada drew in the map. <laughs> it doesn't follow any historical maps, but it's just that imaginary line. So. Well, and, and the fact that that line keeps moving from Métis perspective itself. Yeah. So if we're a people that know ourselves and own ourselves, we sure don't really seem to have a very good grasp on where we came from, how we got here, or really where we're going. So it's, it's strange days. Exactly. And I mean, and that's the, the, to me, that's the hilarious part of this whole cartel blowout, um, really. And I, I hate going on and on about this, but it just seems to get there. But um the, the hilarious part of that is that they say they know themselves, but then they infight like crazy and start this. Well, they don't know who real Métis are. Well, no, they don't know who real Métis are. Well, now nobody knows who real Métis are, right? Like, who, who do you believe? The MNO? Because that's, you know, a, two years or three years ago, the MNC was saying that's the government of Métis in Ontario. But now they're not the authority. But they were, but they're not now. And it, the MNC was the great authority. But now these three organizations are saying it isn't. So it's like they say they know themselves, and they but when they're fighting like this, it it just shows that they they really don't understand each other, let alone Métis identity, Métis people. Well, and I think the the thing is they're willing to put Métis identity politics aside 
when you look at like Alberta and Saskatchewan siding with the MNO, um, they're willing to put this whole conversation about who is and who isn't Métis aside very quickly if it's about governmental relations, governmental funding, uh, better representation for their organization to the federal level. That's really what these guys are all about. Um, where you're from, well, we're willing to overlook that because you know we know that it affects your funding. We know it affects your relationship with your provincial and federal counterparts. So, yeah. you know, identity is not that big of an issue, not that big of a hamper for us if it's about your money. Exactly. Exactly. And, and we'll, we'll blow up our, our membership numbers in order to get that money. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting fight. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things I've been noticing online here, kind of the transition away from kind of the politics of things, but. I guess we're still in the politics of things, but um, is I've noticed a, tr uh, a lot of people saying online about, uh, you know, these organizations not being very inclusive these days. Um, obviously over the last month, we've seen an explosion of black lives matter. We've seen, you know, indigenous people standing up in solidarity and, and these issues are starting to come really not necessarily to come to the forefront because they kind of always were, but it's really become a big movement. And what's interesting is first, I didn't really see any good, um, you know, position stances from these organizations. Again, leadership is absolutely gone. I guess they're still hiding from COVID and not able to do a Zoom call or put out a live Facebook thing or something, but um, because video cameras don't work during COVID. Um, but again, leadership is absent. You know, Black Lives Matter is is fighting for you know racial equality, which is something that you know Indigenous people have always been fighting for. Métis people have been fighting for it, and yet these Métis organizations are, as far as I can see, mostly dead stone silent on this, other than like um, maybe one little platitude here or there on the on the internet, but nothing of some of substance. And I I sent you this thing uh, the other day and it was the Métis Nation of Ontario, I guess, put out a statement in, in solidarity. And one of their people that I guess used to work for them during one of their programs, which was a youth program, had some other thoughts. So I thought I'd share some of these. Um, so she said her first infinite reach meeting with a fellow youth um, said when he, when he saw her show up, Hey, what is this black girl doing here? Um, another, Participant in the course said, uh, compared black men to raccoons. Uh, <clears throat> people were just basically rude. There was a lot of, there was use of the N-word during programs. Um, and, and all of this was happening in front of staff members of the MNO. And they said and did nothing. And so it, it's, you know, it was kind of a like, hey, yeah, it's great that you put out this speech, but you don't actually provide an inclusive, I know, um, space when you're running your programs so and I've noticed a lot of that and I, I think we've done a good job of, of highlighting how they exclude Métis from the east but I really think there's a lot more exclusion going on because when you look at how they exclude people they don't like they they conveniently forget to email people that are on the bat naughty list um, you know things like that like these 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 organizations are very exclusionary to begin with. So this is, I don't know if this was a surprise to you, but it wasn't a surprise to me. No, what I'm, I'm sad about that uh, in this article 
is that within uh, Métis circles, color of skin would play an issue um, in trying to ascertain someone's indigenous ability to be included, uh, as it were. Um, as someone who's on the lighter skin spectrum of things in indigenous circles, you know, you get some of that, but you're, yeah. you're prepared for it. Um, I, I think that that's been a conversation long overdue is the ability, especially in Métis circles, to understand that skin color really isn't any kind of a benchmark <laughs> to whether you fit in or not. Yeah. And it's, I think that's an issue that we really have that's you know, kind of unique to Métis people as far as an Indigenous people group is because it's, we're not singularity. It's not a white man and or a white woman and a you know, First Nations person. And yeah. that's, boom, you had Métis people. And so you have this you know, cohesive, singular, ethnic expression, as it were. And we don't have those conversations. And so I know, especially if you're talking about Métis people south of the, the medicine line, it's a bigger issue, too. They have yeah. much larger uh, diversities in in skin color. And so I think it's very yeah. sad that uh, in 2020, this when anybody would walk into a Métis circle and have any kind of conversation about what you physically look like. Well, that's just it. And I mean, you know, this is one example of, of you know, I guess in this case, anti-blackness. Um, but you, you, when you look at it, like, so somebody's reading this and they're, you know, on the LGBTQ2 plus spectrum. Um, they're, why would they feel comfortable now going to these spaces if, if you're going to be judged on your skin color, what else are you going to be judged on? Um, I know I've ran into a lot of people that don't feel comfortable going to Métis events here locally in Calgary because... Um, a lot of times if the region three is involved, it's very like there's the in crowd and then there's the out crowd. And if you're not in the in crowd, nobody really talks to you. Nobody really wants you there. You get glares and dirty looks. And, and I've, I've, I've known many, or I've come across many Métis who even some from the settlements who have moved to Calgary, that kind of thing, who are simply not comfortable at Métis events because they're constantly being judged. And I think this is something, I don't know if it's, I don't believe it's really the Métis people that are doing it. I really believe it's these Métis organizations, their staff, their, their presidents, and all their elected members. And I love that I can do air quotes now on video. Um, <laughs> makes more sense in, other than, rather than audio. But I just, I just don't think they provide a space that is inclusive to people. I, you know, they, they hold events at odd times so that, most people can't even get there. So you're almost, they almost seem to guarantee that the same 35 people show up at every event. Um, and it just, it just isn't inclusive. And I know there is a lot of Métis that are very welcoming, very inclusive, but I think again, that's where you have to separate these organizations and these organizations events from the actual Métis people, because I think they're very, two very different beings. Well, and a lot of that comes from their language as well. When you have a language and a platform uh, for your organization that continually creates other, you know, we're Métis, those other people aren't Métis. So when you're having an organization like a Métis 
function that's supposed to be open to the public who's on your side yeah um who who's really metis and who's just hanging out trying to be metis and so that's it really becomes about that little card in your wallet and saying i'm verifiably really part of this organization and you're just something else and that's that's the language which we've seen continually put forward by this organization for a lot of years i mean we just talked about how they're still fighting over who is really in and who's really out who's really you know and so how else would it be when you come to these events especially if they're being sponsored by the 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 nation air quotes the nation um that that is what it's all about and I, I really do believe unintentionally that is actually what they're trying to affirm. They're trying to yeah. affirm by making people feel that way that no, see, we're really the in, we're really it. You should look to us and you're not, you're the other. And I think that's really problematic. Yeah. The real, when you're, when you go to these events and you meet real people on the ground, this is where this all really shakes out. at. Absolutely. And, and I can see why a lot of people, simply just refuse to go after a while. Um, mm-hmm. If you're, even if you're there and you see this going, going on, uh, I think for most people in today's day and age, I really do believe that they, they don't like it. They don't like seeing people using slang terms for other ethnicities or, you know, just making jokes about people in a negative way. And so it, because it, it starts to make you feel uncomfortable and then you have to start wondering, well, if they're saying that about people when they're not around, what are they saying about like me when I'm not around or, or my family or, or my group of friends or, you know, people that I, I care about. Um, and, but we've seen this throughout and, and I, I think you're right. They, they constantly use terms like other and, and they're always kind of belittling anybody else's ideas. Um, you know, big M, small M. Um, but it's just kind of throughout their whole thing. I mean, you, you look at their voting and, you know, there's a lot of people in the last M&A election that simply didn't get information about voting. Um, you have to update your card, and they don't necessarily tell everybody to update their card. Um, but everybody who is really good friends with the, the cartel leadership, they all suddenly somehow knew. But a lot of the members themselves didn't actually know. And so, like, there's just level, like constant examples of exclusion after exclusion after exclusion. And uh, I think that's one of the things about these organizations that is so dangerous is that, I mean, they, they got rid of the judicial because it didn't fit with what leadership wanted. They, they constantly get people, turn people away at the voting booths because they don't agree with what, um, you, you know, you go down to a regional level and there's just endless stories of the regional president having all the power and well, this person's speaking up too much and I don't like the way they're talking to me. So they're out and I'm not even going to let them in the office. Um, we've been to communities where literally they locked the office and wouldn't let people in um, to look at, to even talk to them or whatever. I mean, you're excluding your own people, your own members from all these things. I guess it does, it only makes sense. And I shouldn't be surprised that they're, you know, excluding or, or de- degrading to other ethnicities when they're own, they're degrading to themselves. Yeah. And that's really what it's for me. It's what it's about. You look at uh, the whole conversation we've had, uh, you know, about politics and maintaining identity. And we have, 
Métis communities and Métis people trying to reassert and make better known in the age of multimedia that they've existed there all the time. And we have non-Indigenous um, scholars propped up to say, no, 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 you're just a you know, race shifter. And we come up with this language that's impunitive to anyone who would say they're Métis instead of saying, we're going to take the lead. We're going to we're going to sit down with these communities. We're going to try to understand where they're coming from, and find out if that if that's actually a, a valid thing to say that they're Métis or not. It's instant hostility. It's instant beratement. It's instant invalidation. Mm -hmm. um, that really isn't the indigenous way at all, and it is is highly destructive to any kind of unity building in Métis communities with Métis people. And sadly, it, it leads to these kinds of things where you're judged on the color of your skin, on your sexual yeah. orientation, on whether you're simply just part of the organization or not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, um, you know, I think these, these are some of the things that I think are starting to come out and they're starting to bubble to the surface. Um, I know oh, maybe a year ago or so, um, there was calls online and I don't know what ever has ever happened with this, but uh, maybe it's still in the works, but there was calls online for any women who've experienced, you know, harassment from anybody, any of the leadership of these organizations, any of the staff at these organizations. And, you know, you look at this, the, this woman who posted these things uh, that we were talking about her story of being harassed and, and, and called names and, and all sorts of nasty, like horrible stuff at you know, program while programs should, they're trying to deliver a program and they're saying these things to her during the program. Um, so you, you just got, you got to know, like, you know, do you feel comfortable then taking your kid and putting them in the fiddle lessons at region three in my case, when you don't know if that's the environment they're going into, you don't know if your, your, you know, son is gay and, but he wants, he's 18, he wants to learn to fiddle or jig you don't know if you're sending them into the lion's den for the next, you know, for the weekend, for the, the, the once a year that they do anything like that. Um, so what, you know, I, I think these are things we need to ferret out and I think account, it, it boils back down to accountability and transparency. These leaders aren't accountable and transparent financially. They're not apparent, uh, transparent and accountable socially. Um, they've disappeared completely from the radar during what is arguably one of the most needed times where we need leadership. Um, so they're not strong leaders. So what really, again, and we've asked this question many times, what really do these organizations represent? Do they really represent Métis people as exclusionary as in this case, I'm going to say racist for the comments that were said to this lady. Um, you know, I've, I've had a, We've actually had a few people say they won't listen to the show anymore because we talk about LGBTQ2 plus in a positive way. Um, so I've gotten those emails. Uh, so is this really, do the organizations truly represent Métis people? Is that what Métis people are or, or are they not? And I think Métis that are in these organizations really need to look hard. It, it goes so much beyond just the financial screwing around that these guys do you know it's it, it goes far beyond that and i think we really you people need in these organizations really need to ask themselves are these organizations worth my time my money my effort and my thoughts or 
is there a better organization? Is there a better way to do this where things are accountable, where leadership isn't hiding? Um, you know, that, that and, and it's across the board on, on all issues, I think. Well, and I think we've come to the point where we have to understand that these organizations, the MNC and every one of the other organizations only exist because they are, they're only there because the government has to manufacture consent. Yes. And that's all these organizations are there to do is barter away um, Métis rights and Métis claims. Yes. And that, that's really the only reason these organizations exist. That's their only function. Um, because if it's about culture, language, if it's about an acre of land, um, there, you know, there's nothing. There's, mum's the yes. word. There's nothing on the table. There's no paperwork. There's no lawsuits. There's no negotiations at all. It's all for programs and services. Um, and none, none of it has to do with Section 35. So what, what do these organizations exist for? To, to really barter away Métis rights. Yeah, and which we, we circle back around to the hydro deal as an example of exactly that. Yeah. So, so and it, really, for anything that you're talking about that's important, you know, value systems, language, culture, inclusiveness, identity, that's not what these organizations exist for. No. No, and, and you see that even here in Alberta. Uh, you see that with the, the northern group of Métis communities breaking away and forming their own organization now. Um, you see that. It's, it's not an inclusive environment. You know, the Métis Nation of Alberta wants it their way, and the way Edmonton dictates it, that's the way it shall be, and nobody shall question it. And as soon as you question it, oh, now you're, the, you're out. You're, you're on the outskirts. Yeah. Again, it's exclusionary. It's not a, okay, you have a difference of opinion. Let's sit down and talk about that. Maybe we can reach some agreement. Like adults, like, like grown human beings are supposed to do things like that. But no, it's, oh, you don't like what I say? Screw you, you're out. I don't like you anymore. You know, like it, we're going to defame you. We're going to blast you every chance we get. And we're going to make sure that it's hard for you to even be at an event. Um, and for what? Because you're asking leadership questions because you're asking leadership to be accountable. Um, I know that if, you know, media sends a request to the MA to see, Hey, what did you, can I get a breakdown of your, your expenses on last for 2018? Nope. That won't be uh, acknowledged. I've sent requests into the MA just to be on the show so that we could talk to them um, to see their thoughts on COVID and things like this. And, and what's going on? Never got a call back. Not surprised, but never got a call back. I kind of don't expect them to, but at least I put the effort in. But it's things like that. You don't, you don't, they're very, very secretive and closed off to even their own members. Um, and I, I just, I, I think we need to start really taking charge of these organizations. And I'd love to see people finally starting to say, no, it's enough. Until there's a better, you know, system in place, until you guys do better you're not getting my membership money. You're not getting, I'm not, I don't want anything to do with you. You know, and if, if you're, if you're not racist and you don't believe in that and you don't support that, how can you support these organizations that exclude people? You know, and it, and it's beyond just Eastern Métis. It's, it's everybody. They're excluding whoever they want. Well, it's like, you know, I've talked about a lot for a lot of time now is that I think a lot of people are the silent majority and there's simply a lack of an alternative. Yeah. And we have, 
a giant government-funded organization with all the media, all the money, everything like that, with manufactured consent to do whatever the heck they want. And the rest of everyone who is just like you and me sitting on their couch looking at this going, well, what else would you really do then? Like, so even if you disagree, the, I think the big challenge is we have to begin to find some traction uh, for a real viable alternative to provide a counter to what is quickly becoming, you know, ugly. Uh, something that no Métis person would really want or should want their name attached to. Absolutely. And I mean, I, you know, I go back to like even UNDRIP, uh, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. Like right in there, it's very clear that Indigenous people have the right to choose who represents them politically. Uh, and, and so this whole idea of, well, we're the MNA, so we're the only government for Métis people in Alberta. You have to join us or you're simply not Métis is a total lie. So again, you have the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, which, you know, activists and, and Indigenous across the globe are trying to get, you know, governments and, and nations to recognize and, and adhere to. And, you know, the Métis National Council and its affiliates cartel doesn't even follow the Métis, that. They are not implementing UNDRIP in their own organizations and their Indigenous organizations. So... You know, it's it's just that fallacy of of what they're doing and what they're what they're saying and what they're doing. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, you go back. I, I've been trying to continue to read into more of of a book about the MMF and stuff. And it, and it, even from the start, like they started out as lobby groups and they continue to this day. So to say they're government is a huge overreach and overstep, in my opinion. Um, but it just it just leads to all of this, like. There, it just it leads to bad, I guess, governance of people. I guess if you would say that. Well, and I think that's the challenge. And not only is it mismanagement of funds, uh, you know, not only is it a sellout of indigenous rights. Um, you look at the article coming back, and you look at where it still have fun, huge fundamental problems in what should be an inclu- inclusive organization. Um, yeah. If you're Métis, it shouldn't matter your orientation or your skin color. Yeah. That's not, that's not what being Métis is about. No. And so that these kinds of problems would be inside of an organization only goes to show how important it is we find a new way forward. We find a new way to create our collectiveness and a new way to interface with our Indigenous and non-Indigenous counterparts in, you know, in 2020. Absolutely, because that, and I'm and I'm glad you brought that up because it's like the one other area that they're extremely exclusive is when it comes to our First Nations family. They're they're completely exclude them as much as they humanly can, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily from events, but from political conversations, from agreements with governments, and just in general from communicating. Um, they're not inclusive as to even say. To even like make a phone call and say, "Hey, look, this is we're going to go talk to the government next week. This is what we're going to talk about." So, hope you guys are okay with that. But even that is too much for these organizations, as far as inclusiveness. So, so yeah, you know, you got the skin color, you got gender, you got uh, orientation, you you got membership or not, you got you know the right family or not, and then you also have well, we're going to exclude our First Nations family from any decision making. Um, and I, I just 
wholeheartedly to, to my core field. That is completely the opposite of where I think guys like Lariel and, and Daniels and Dumont and all these guys, where they wanted things to go. They didn't, I don't think they were ever like, Oh no, uh, we don't talk to our first nation family. Ah, uh, get rid of those guys. We don't want anything to do with them. I don't think that was their plan. And so, but these organizations have built that. And I, I think it's to the detriment of Métis people wholeheartedly. Well, and, and to the whole indigenous conversation, how do we have yeah. uh, three, three distinct indigenous people groups in this country? And when was the last time they sat down at the table together on any kind of level to, to have those cross cross-sectional discussions? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know when was the, when the last time did leadership from the cartel or at any level sit down with any serious leadership from a First Nations community. Well, and especially when you look at these hydro deals and stuff that they're signing, it's like, and, and I'm sure in, here in Alberta that the MNA would love to get in on some pipeline and resource deals wholeheartedly, <laughs> which goes to the real core issue between the Northern groups and them. But, um, but yeah, it's just like they, they, they're not including First Nations in any of those conversations. You know, they, uh, they claim the land in Manitoba. Well, there was people in Manitoba before it was Manitoba, before anybody that was mixed blood ever got there, before Red River was even founded. There was people there. And those people made the people that founded Red River. So how do you claim that land as your own without including that, that other part of your family? You know, it's, uh, you know, you're making decisions without without including the, the rest of the family. And I, I just think that that should show the pattern of behavior. And I think, I think that's one thing that I've noticed on our, our shows throughout the years is you can clearly see the pattern of behavior, whether you're talking about finances, whether you're talking about social responsibility, whether you're talking about transparency, the pattern of behavior of these organizations is all the same. Um, just a little while ago, I seen a couple of weeks ago, I seen a, a video where, um, the their Métis Nation of Saskatchewan was having a big meeting at Batoche and they wouldn't elect, let in the elected treasurer because she's not the favorite one. And she's had to go to court to te- and have the court say, yeah, no, actually she is the, by, the rightfully legally do like elected member or treasurer. So you guys couldn't just get rid of her. Um, and they wouldn't let her into the meeting. Now they blamed it on COVID and spacing. But you and I have both been to Batoche. It is not a four foot by four foot cell. It is a large, large area with a massive stage. So wherever you're holding the meeting, I think you could get one more person in for six foot and still have six foot distancing. Um, but that's what they claimed is, oh, COVID, we have too many people. Well, actually, you don't. But but they wouldn't let her in. And again, excluding. But they're excluding their own. and. So just it's a pattern of behavior for these people, and and I think it's just sad, like because the only people that well, suffer is Métis people. Yeah, and and that's really what this is about: is how long do Métis people want to put up with it? Yeah, uh, you know, here in Alberta, you know, based on the government census, we talked about this. We have over a hundred thousand Métis in this province. The yeah. there's only what forty thousand that are belong to the uh, the nation here, and so. Yeah. That leaves, let's face facts, the, the majority, the ball. Yeah. Without any voice, without any representation, without any inclusion, 
And I think the challenge is finding traction with those people to form something better, yeah. to be honest, to something to move forward in a more positive direction. And you see the guys in Northern Alberta trying to do the same thing for the benefit of their own communities. Yeah. It would be great to see something more cohesive. I think even on a, on a bigger level, there's, there's a lot of Métis in Saskatchewan, in Manitoba, who are still outside the cartel organizations in, Absolutely. in uh, BC, you know, um, outside the cartel organizations. We need to find some common ground. We need to find some common language to really, I think, push for some honest change. Absolutely. And I, I think especially, you know, like it really showed up uh, during COVID and stuff. Um, we have a few emails and I haven't really put together my thoughts on some of the emails we got, but you know, they're, again, you're, 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 these organizations are supposed to be providing programs and services, but they're failing to do even that. There was a lot of people that just simply never even heard back on any support for COVID. Um, so some people got rent help. Most people didn't. Um, nobody really knows where the money was spent. There's no conversations right now between leadership and where the money went. Leadership isn't telling anybody where, you know, like, so yeah, I think it's, it is time for people to start going, uh, just looking at these organizations saying, is this really what we need? And it's not even about what we want. They were giving people gas cards. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And grocery cards and only, but only some people, cause some people just were like, I called about a gas card or grocery cards, never heard back. Yeah. <laughs> It's, uh, and again, I mean, you know, I, I cannot believe during a time of a global pandemic that Métis leadership basically just hid. They ran to their house and hid. I mean, I think we've done more, you know, public speaking through our podcast. Uh, and we haven't been putting out that many episodes lately, but we've done more than they've done this whole time during COVID. And I just, I think, I think it's pathetic. Um, I don't know another word to, to use. Well, and, and I think even if you were to say, well, that's just our perspective. The truth for me is when you're looking at the financial aid, the organizations will have got, yep. what does it actually translate into for the people? And if you want to put a spin on it, that providing gas cards, if you want to say that providing grocery cards is good, then I would like to see the numbers. If you provide it, 50 was it a hundred was it a thousand was it ten thousand how many people were able to receive even a modest amount of aid in the organization of yeah. which they're a membership uh, a member of in yeah. good standing and the fact that we know they've got millions of dollars in funding yeah and yet we don't have that what we continually have and what i always have said is the nation is these maintaining the cartels are very good at public spin mm. They're very good at trying to convince you they're doing a good job, that they're managing their money. And yeah. see there, they'll even tell you, well, so-and-so got a car. So-and-so yeah. got you know, some grocery money. But when you have 40,000 members, well, how, how many was that? What percentage were you able to help of all the people there? And I think that's where the conversation really falls down. Well, and, and I've always wondered, like, you know, when you look at things like this, as an organization – and whose job is there to um, provide programs and services to people, wouldn't, why wouldn't you want to brag about the help you, that you've been able to provide? 
So yeah, you got some funding and really you're just like handing out gas cards or grocery cards or whatever. But the truth is, is yeah. Like why wouldn't you want to say, Hey, okay. So we've helped, we've sent out, uh, you know, a thousand, you know, $100 uh, gas cards or whatever it is. Like we've sent out a thousand four hundred dollar grocery cards. We've, we've done this, we've done that. Here's the percentage of phone calls we received and the percentage that we were able to help. And the only reason you wouldn't be proud of those numbers is if they were abysmal. Because <laughs> if, if, if me and you got $20 million and it was supposed to help people and we went out and helped 20 million people for what, how, or whatever, you'd be proud of that. You'd like, you, you know, and not to be feed your ego, but like as an organization, you want to, you want to be that transparent and say, look at what we were able to do, or this is what the government gave us. Here's what we spent it on at least. And here's the number of calls. Here's the number of help that we, and the amount of help we, but they don't. And the re they're, the only thing I can think of is they're clearly not proud of what they've done. They, they can't be proud of the help they've provided because it's been abysmal. Well, I think they're like everybody else though. They'll be proud that they did something. Um, yeah. And they'll blame the wheels that turn too slow. They'll blame yeah. bureaucracy. They'll blame all kinds yeah. of things and reasons that it didn't go down or didn't happen the way, geez, they wish it would have. But the, the truth is, in an organization that really is about membership, if you have 40,000 members, what percentage of those members actually got help in their hand during this crisis? Yeah, totally. uh, how many people were, were able? Was it 10? Is it 10,000 out of 40,000? We just yeah. don't know. We don't. And, and I don't know if they have any way of even tracking that. I don't know if they put, and, and, and again, I mean, if they're not tracking that information, then they're not putting any thought into what they're doing. I mean, if you got money to help people, you would want to keep track of who the money went to, how much went, how many people were able to help. Because yeah, I mean, honestly, I believe the, the money they got from the government isn't enough to help. 40,000 Métis. It just simply isn't. So they can't help everybody. So right away, I've already, you're already at a position where people understand that as the whatever local MNA in our case, that we understand you can't help all 40,000. But out of the ones who called in, how many did you help? Don't know. So I don't know. It's a weird time. And I, and I just wish people, I, I, I hope that people will start waking up to this. And I think they are. And if, if there is, you know, one thing that's come out of the last month is I think a lot of people are starting to wake up and ask questions of organizations, ask questions about inclusivity, ask questions about why things are done the way they are. Um, we have a world of systemic racism that Métis people have faced since the beginning of Métis people. Uh, we still have systemic racism. We still have governments in Quebec denying that there's ever been indigenous people in Quebec, uh, you know, stuff like that. So it's like, we face these barriers as well. Um, and, and I think it's just sad that we can't rely on these organizations to step up when they need, when they're needed. Yeah. And I think so. I think that's, I'm hoping these conversations lead to change. You know, if people yeah. are unsure, if people aren't, don't know what steps to take, you know, we're happy to help in any way we can and bounce any conversations around that need to happen. Yeah. If it's about change and positivity, it's something yeah. that we can move forward in a meaningful, real way, yeah. you know, on the grassroots, right down in the community, what can we help to do people do to get, you know, 
culture going, language going, mm-hmm. community going, you know, potlucks together, whatever we got to do to help people find a cohesive community where they live. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, I think, uh, you know, I hope that as more people, uh, you know, hear conversations like this, see what's going on online, he, see, read stories about like this one lady's experience with the MNO. Um, and I, I think as people read these things and, and hear these conversations, I hope they do start to ask questions um, and, and ask very specific questions of these organizations, even if it's just with themselves, like, do I support this? You know, go and read the MNA bylaws, read the MNS bylaws, read the uh, MNBC bylaws or the, you know, every organization's bylaws and see if there's inclusive language, see if they're, do they even have policies on LGBTQ2+, do they have an LGBTQ2+, representative or group or committee to plan events specific for, you know, Two-Spirit or, or you know, people like that, like, what, what are these policies, um, you know, and I see First Nations, I see, I see uh, chiefs going and standing up at Pride and things like that. But what I don't see is the Métis Nation of Alberta standing up at Pride. I don't see the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan doing any of these things or, or the MMF or the, um, you know, MNO, so to speak. Maybe they are on a very local level. I don't know. Maybe we're just not seeing it. But I think these are questions that need to be asked. And I think people need to start really looking into these bylaws, looking into policies, looking at events and saying like, what, what are these really about? And um, yeah, I just, I, I think it should be, fo- we need to come back to focus on culture, language, relationships with the rest of our family, which includes East as well as First Nations, Inuit, um, <laughs> South of the Medicine Line. Those relationships need to be repaired or, or even built because they were never really built to begin with because of colonialism. Um, but yeah, and I hope that leads to conversations. So I hope. <laughs> well, I, th- I think that's the whole point of the show. It's what we've always wanted to do. It's what we've been, why we're yeah. still doing it is because, you know, we're watching millions of dollars funnel into organizations that rarely make it into the hands of mainstream people. And we believe there should be accountability in that. We believe yeah. that if you're going to form an organization, then it should be accountable to its membership. Yeah. You're going to form an organization that represents Indigenous people. It should be inclusive to yeah. the people that it's supposed to represent, regardless of skin color or, or orientation. Absolutely. Um, you know, and the fact that these things in 2020 are still a conversation point, that we're even here talking about it, I think is a, a huge problem in and of itself. Absolutely. Like I would love to either be not doing this show because there's no material for it or us talking about the great things that these organizations are doing. I would love that. I really truly would because that means people are getting what they need out of the organizations. People are getting the services. People are getting the the language classes. So I love, I I really would love to get there one day and have those conversations as opposed Mm -hmm. to why, why is it we don't have this? Why is it we don't have that? So here's the hoping, and, and you're right. We've we kind of always started this to try to start conversations, um, and maybe get people to start thinking a little bit outside the box, or or just questioning. I think it's very healthy to question any organization. Um, you know, we've had people question us about our podcast and everything else we've done, and that's fine. I, I think that's that's a healthy way to do things. So I'm I'm just hoping more people get out and question these organizations and really look at who represents them. I mean. 
even within you know federal provincial municipal governments who do, who's actually representing you not not necessarily whether you like Justin Trudeau's hair or not but look at your mp and see if that person really represents you. um but you know here's to hoping well uh, that's what we've always talked about you know we want the equivalent of saying you know if there's a powwow trail that you can go on to experience different nations culture uh where, where's the equivalent for Métis people? Yes. Um, if you can go to these events at Calgary Stampede and you can see the giant circle of teepees there, that's fantastic. Where's the Red River Cars? Where's anything Métis in, in, in a balance to that? So you just don't yeah. see it. And you go to Klondike Days in Edmonton, where, where's the Indigenous Métis presence there? We, yeah. we don't have it. Yeah. And, and I think that that in and of itself is telling you everything you need to know about where we sit and why, why we are having these conversations how many years later. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I don't know. I, I, uh, I think it's, I, you know, I, I'm just reading some of the things I've read over the last few weeks and I'm even more disappointed in the cartel organizations if that was possible. But I, I do hope, uh, you know, people get, a, I, I guess I would like to leave on a, on a hopeful message for people that, you know, you can get out there and support these things, though, like Black Lives Matter, like Pride, like whatever you want, hunting rights, uh, these kinds of things. And you can do it without these organizations. So, um, you know, it, it, I think people need to understand their power and feel empowered to stand up, stand up against things when they see it. If you're at a program and you see somebody making racist comments, stand up to that. And it, it takes a lot of courage, but I hope people get to that point where they feel empowered to do it. because clearly these new organizations need somebody to step up because they won't if they don't have to. That's right. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I don't know if you have anything else to rant and rave about Jay. I'm, I'm all tapped out now. It's uh, I'm wait, we, I mean, wait. I, I can keep going. We can rant all day long. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could, we could, but then it becomes incoherent at some point And then, you know, but, uh, but I'm just, uh, you know, I'm glad you could make it today. And uh, hopefully we can get uh, more episodes out. We'll see. And hopefully hopefully some more interviews. I have to be honest, I haven't been able to put a lot of effort into uh, the Jig is Up lately. But hopefully that changes here in the next little while. So, um, Well, as things hopefully get back to normal, we can start to get uh, back into the groove, as it were. Yeah, exactly. But I guess for now, until next time, the Jig is Up.